All right, welcome to this year's Monday night meeting. I want to especially welcome to those who are watching online. Although we wish you could be with us in person, we have decided to limit these meetings, at least initially, to just the staff and students. And so we are thankful, though, that we have the technology to be able to stream these over the Internet. I'm looking forward to our time together over the next several weeks. Uh, I hope that it will be beneficial. And before I get started, I do want to explain some changes to this year's Monday night meeting. Normally, we do one series all the way from the spring, all the way to the fall, I mean, from the fall all the way to the spring, all the way throughout the school year. But this year, we're going to do it a little bit differently. We're going to do one series in the fall, eight sessions in the fall, and then one series in the spring, uh, eight sessions in the spring, and we'll have a a break in between those. Uh, I will be teaching this series, and then, Lord willing, Mr. Nuremberg will be teaching the series in the spring. Several years ago, I taught two series, on uh, one on Christ in the Old Testament and one on the church in the Old Testament. And so what I've done for this series is I've decided to rework some of those sessions uh, and focus in on the Christian life. One of the prayers that I've been consistently praying during the last several months has been that God might purify His people, that He would sanctify us, that He would set us apart, that he would prepare us uh, so that we would be who we ought to be in these days. These are troublesome days, are they not? Difficult days, both as a nation as well as for us individually. Uh, We've seen things that we've never seen before in our lifetime. And my prayer is that us, the church, God's people, might be ready uh, to be who we ought to be in these days, to be salt, to be light, to be able to stand whatever whatever comes, right, that we'd be able to stand uh, without compromise, without denying our God. And so some of the questions that I want to raise in these Monday night meetings over the course of the next eight weeks are questions like this. Who are we as God's people? Who are we, the church? Uh, What should characterize our life? What is it that makes us different, right? Who, Who are we? What sets us Apart, and what is God calling us to be and to do in these days in which we live? And so tonight we're going to be looking, as you can see on the screen, we're going to be looking at the reality that we are those, who are we? We are those who confess that Jesus is the only way to God. Like this is something that is unique about Christians, right? We, we believe that there's only one way to God. And this is something that we confess. But we'll be looking at some other aspects of the Christian life. For instance, next week, Lord willing, we'll be looking at the fact that we are those who welcome Jesus' reign in our life. We're those who submit to Jesus Christ as our Lord. We'll be looking at the reality that we are those who trust in Jesus to meet all of our needs. Amen? Right? He is our manna. Christians are those who trust God. They have a trust in their Father, right? We're going to be looking at the fact that Christians are those who actively seek to eradicate sin from their life. Christians are those who pursue holiness, without which no one sees the Lord. Christians are also also those who are strangers in this land, right? So we're going to be looking one of these weeks uh, at the reality that we are those who refuse to make this world our home. And that's also something that distinguishes us, that makes us different, right? 
We'll also be looking at the fact that we are those who exercise God's authority on this earth. We are his representatives. We have a mission to accomplish on this earth. So these are some of the topics. I'm just kind of giving you a sneak preview as to where we're going over the next few weeks. Now, what we're doing, though, is going to be a little bit different and that we're going to be looking at particular Old Testament passages that relate to New Testament realities. Uh, we call this, this, this moving from Old Testament to New Testament, you call, we call this typology. That's the technical term for it, uh, typology. And normally I would spend an entire session explaining typology and the ins and outs of it and how to faithfully uh, interpret it. But instead of doing that, I have placed a session on our website, on the Monday Night Meeting page, and you can listen to that session, and it'll give you a good introduction to typology if you're interested. I do, though, want to make one point clear before we begin, is that in drawing parallels between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we do need to be careful that we're actually drawing parallels that are actually there, and we're not just being creative and making things up. Um, in the Word of God. So in order to protect ourselves from simply making up interesting and creative parallels, I have decided to limit ourselves to those Old Testament stories and passages uh, which the New Testament clearly points to and says, you know, and the New Testament says, that's a parallel, you know, that's, this is actually a parallel. This is really what the Old Testament was all about. And so we'll be limiting ourselves to those. Uh, one more point. This is... Um, this Monday night meeting, this series will have maybe more of a classroom feel. Uh, this is purposeful. This is actually a class for the students uh, that they are taking. And um, there will be a handout each week that you could was fill in the blanks. And you'll see on the slide, uh, on the slides of PowerPoint, that there are some words that are bolded and underlined. Those are the words you want to write down in your handout. Okay, uh, But for those who are streaming online, I just want to let you know that those handouts are available on our website at the Monday Night Meeting page. You can open that uh, link, that PDF, and print it out, and it could be helpful for following along. So with that lengthy introduction, let's begin our time with prayer tonight. Father, we come to you and acknowledge our need of you tonight. We need you to open our hearts. We need you to give us understanding. We need you to reveal Christ to us and reveal to our hearts that Christ is who he claims to be, the only way to you. So, Father, we ask that you would do that tonight. And you would take your word and apply it to our hearts by your spirit. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you turn to Genesis chapter 28. And while you're turning to Genesis 28, I want to rewind and give the greater context to this story that we find in Genesis 28. And that context begins all the way back in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we read that God created the heavens and the earth, right? He created everything and he created it all very good. It was all very, very good. Everything was excellent. And he created mankind. He created Adam and Eve and he placed them in a place called the Garden of Eden. 
And that Garden of Eden was a place where Adam and Eve experienced God's blessing, incredible blessing, as well as God's presence. You had God's blessing and God's presence. But it doesn't take very long as you read the story. You only get to chapter 3, maybe five minutes of reading into the story, that you find out that Adam and Eve sin. They rebel against their good God, the good creator. And God has to drive them out of that place of God's blessing and his presence, right? They're driven out. And he places an angel there so they cannot go back into that place of blessing. And in one sense, you could say that since that time, man has been trying to regain access into Eden. They were always trying to get back into that land of blessing and privilege. And we use our creative powers to gain access to Eden, but we often do it, or we try to do it, behind his back, right? We try to get back into Eden and into the land of blessing, but we do it trying to circumnavigate God, to do it behind God's back, to do it without God. We do it in our own effort. And this always ends up in failure. We seek for control, but it escapes us. We seek for power and status, but it ends up consuming us. We seek for pleasure and fulfillment and satisfaction, but it leaves us empty and weary. We seek for safety, but we only find danger. We seek for health, but all the while our bodies are decaying and drawing ever closer to death. Now, as you keep reading the story of Genesis and you get to chapter 11, you come upon an interesting story. It's the story of a group of people who come together and they've got one goal. And their goal is to build a tower that will reach heaven. And so they come together and they start to build. But before they accomplish their task, God comes down and he confuses the languages, the language. And, and, And the building has to stop. And the story of the Tower of Babel depicts man's unrelenting quest to get access back into the Garden of Eden, back into God's presence, you know, back, get into heaven, try to secure it for themselves. We want that. That that seems to be what is depicted there. But the half-completed tower also stands as a monument to man's failure in his quest for greatness and blessing and security. Now, there's some interesting parallels between that Tower of Babel and the story of Jacob's Ladder, which is where we're trying to get to, okay, this morning, it's tonight. Um, it, with the Tower of Babel, people are initiating and building some kind of a structure, right, that will reach heaven. But in the story that we're going to read here, God initiates and he places a structure that actually does link heaven and earth. And rather than man trying to grab God's blessings for themselves, God comes down and offers his blessing to man. It's an incredible parallels and contrast between these two stories. But now we turn to, now we're in Genesis 28, so we, we move forward into the story, and we come to a man named Jacob. Now Jacob is Abraham's grandson. And we discover, if you read some of the stories before our section, you you discover that Jacob is a manipulative man, always seeking to exploit a situation to his advantage. You might recall how he um, cheats his brother, uh, gets him to sell his birthright over a, uh, just for a, a bowl of porridge. Well, maybe it's more than porridge, lentils or some kind of food, right? Uh, a little later on in the story, he, uh, 
he impersonates his brother and he goes in front of his blind father, pretends to be Esau, his brother. He lies to his father. He cheats his brother and he, and he gets the blessing because he wants the blessing of the firstborn, right? And he gets his father to bless him. And so this is the kind of man we, we come to. And uh, a man, I wonder if you can see it, that has this drive to gain Eden, to gain the blessing for himself, to, to manipulate his way, to get what he wants for himself. I wonder if you perceive that in your own heart tonight, that, that constant drive and manipulation of circumstances in an ongoing effort to build your tower that will reach to heaven, your heaven, whatever heaven is to you. you know. Well, Esau intends to murder his brother Jacob after their father Isaac passes away. And so Jacob has to flee for his life. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 28 in verse 10. And I'm going to read verse 10 all the way to the end of the chapter. Okay, Are you all with me so far? This is making sense? Okay, let's read. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely, The Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. And he called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me on this journey that I take, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety. Then the Lord will be my God, and this stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So here's our passage. Here's this story that we want to think about. And the passage begins by giving us a simple background for the divine vision. Jacob is on a journey from Beersheba to Haran. From Beersheba to Haran, he's traveling about 450 miles. And he's only a little bit of ways into the trip, about 45 miles into the trip. He's been traveling a few days, and he's arrived at a certain place for the night. This would be like you walking from Greenville, South Carolina to Washington, D.C. And Bethel would be about... Gaffney, South Carolina, where the big peach is when you go by on 85. That would be where Bethel would be, okay? And there he is. 
he comes to a particular place. And this idea of the place is emphasized multiple times in our passage, but right at the beginning it's emphasized three times. He comes to this place. Now, it seems like he comes to this place somewhat haphazardly or randomly. So why is he stopping in this particular place and not on the next hill or the next hill after that? Well, we are told the sun had set. And when the sun had set, he stopped and he lay down to sleep. And so Jacob, note that Jacob's not on a leisurely stroll. He's traveling as long as the sun gives him light. He's, he's on a long journey. He's perhaps maybe even afraid of his brother that may be coming after him, um, hunting him down. But he takes a stone, he places it at his head place, and he lays down to sleep. That's the setting. Okay, What does he dream? Well, he begins to dream a dream. And this dream is characterized by three things, which is set off by the word behold. You'll see it three times in the text. Behold this, behold that. Uh, and the threefold use of this word invite you and me, the reader, to witness the dream for ourselves. It's almost like we get a, to be part of the dream. One commentator said this particle, behold, goes with a lifted arm and an open mouth. There, a ladder. Oh, look, angels. And, and there, the Lord himself. You know, and this is the way it is told. Well, what does he see? Well, first of all, these three things. First of all, a structure. There's this ladder set on earth with its top reaching into heaven. And the Hebrew word for ladder here is sulam. And what's interesting about that word is the only occurrence of this word in all of Scripture. And so we disagree, scholars disagree, as to what he saw. What did he see? Did he see a ladder reaching to heaven? Or did he see a staircase reaching heaven and that's you know staircase ladder or did he read perhaps see a babylonian ziggurat these were buildings that were built back in those days that symbolized access to the gods with this super long staircase what did he see well what's important is that the structure links heaven and earth regardless of what he saw Uh, and so here uh, we're seeing that this is a place where there is true access to God. And for clarity's sake, I'm going to refer it to the ladder because we're all used to Jacob's ladder, right? So this is what we're going to think about. But then he sees action. And the action is angels going up and down on... And here there's ambiguity. Is it it or him? And In the text, in the Hebrew text, there's ambiguity. It's either the angels are ascending and descending on the ladder. That makes sense, doesn't it? Or they are ascending and descending down to Jacob. That also makes sense. But either way, either the ladder is the focal point or Jacob is the focal point. And we're not sure, okay? So I'm just wanna, I want to lay out that both are possibilities right here. Jewish scholars debated this. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, actually says ladder. But the Targums, which are Aramaic paraphrases of the Old Testament, read Jacob, and commentators are split 50-50. So there you go. You know, choose. You get to choose. Um, And then there is... So what, what, what can we learn about these angels? They're going up and down. Have you ever thought it's kind of somewhat mysterious, right? This, this, this motion up and down on the ladder. What is the text trying to tell us? Well, first, we could say that the ladder and the angels add to the glory and wonder of God's revelation. Would you agree with me? 
There's something awe-inspiring about this revelation. Secondly, we can look at all of Scripture and say, okay, what is what are angels all about in Scripture? And we can say that angels uh, deliver messages from God. And just even in Genesis, they deliver messages. They protect people from harm. They lead and assist God's people in the accomplishing of His will. And so maybe we can safely conclude that the angelic activity serves both to add glory and authenticity to the message. Does that make sense? Glory to the message, but also to back up the message of the vision, as well as to assure Jacob of God's protection and assistance. Note that the vision and the action help support and confirm the message itself, because the message will be one of, I'm going to protect you, Jacob, right? So this all fits together. But then we get to the message itself. Behold, the Lord stood above it. Now here again, it's that ambiguity. Is is the Lord up the top of the ladder, shouting down from the top of the ladder? Or is it that he's standing beside Jacob and speaking to him? That he's come down from heaven and speaking to Jacob? I prefer the latter, but both, not the latter, but the latter. (laughs) I prefer the, the, the picture of God coming down and speaking to Jacob, but it could go Either way. Now, in in terms of sheer length, in terms of the story, the message to Jacob is the focal point. And he promises three things generally and three things more specifically. What are these? Well, there's first of all, generally, the promise of a land. Secondly, the promise of a lot of descendants. Jacob, you're going to have a lot of kids, you know, a lot of offspring. Third, It's through you and your descendants that all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, if you remember, this is God reiterating the covenant promise that he made to Abraham, and he's saying it again to Jacob, right? Jacob, you're going to be part of that fulfillment. Then more specifically to Jacob, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to keep you, and I'm going to bring you back to this land. Yes, you're leaving it for a time. You're traveling way far away to Haran, but you're going to come back, and you're going to come back safely. And so this is the promise that God's make, God makes to Jacob. Now, how does Jacob respond? He wakes up, and he is surprised. And he says to himself, Surely the Lord is in this place. I have just stumbled upon God's house, and I didn't know it. And this is surprise. And that surprise quickly turns to fear, right? And he says, how awesome is this place? This is the house of God. This is the very gate of heaven. Here is a place where there is access to God. And he calls the place Bethel, which means house of God, Bethel. But then he moves to consecration. We don't know exactly the significance of Jacob taking the rock and setting setting it up and pouring oil on it, but it seems to be a religious act, consecrating, doesn't seem to be consecrating himself, but consecrating the location to God. Like this is a location that is set apart. And so he places this rock and he stands it up and he pours oil and he's saying, this is a special place, a very special place. And then finally he makes a vow. Now, although Jacob's response seems to be tainted by his conniving and manipulative character, seems to be bargaining with God almost here at the end, yet we do need to see the positive here. He understands that God's revelation of himself 
demands something of Jacob, right? It places a demand upon him. And he, he understands something of that. All right. There's the story. You're with me? We're just focused on the story. We painted the different, we looked at the different aspects. Now, what is the point? What is the author of Genesis intending that we understand? What are we to grasp from this? And what are the, the original recipients to understand? Now, here's a question. Who are the original recipients of Genesis? Anybody? It's the children of Israel, right? The children of Israel who've come out of Egypt. Moses is writing. Why is he writing to the children of Israel? Well, he's writing to them to convey to them, to explain to them where they've come from, right? Uh, where they've come from, where they're going. They're going to the promised land. And where they fit in God's story, God's redemptive story. And so it's a very important narrative for the children of Israel. So what does this all mean for them, for us, in, in, in terms of all of this? First of all, Jacob is the recipient of the Abrahamic covenant and the one through whom God will fulfill his promises. Now remember that Jacob is the father of the nation, right? Jacob's name will be turned to Israel. That's why they're called Israelites. And he is the father of 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so they are to understand these people are coming out of the land that, hey, Jacob, our father, he is the recipient of these promises. And in fact... The people of Israel are already at this point, as they come out of Egypt, fulfilling these promises, right? They are going towards the land. They are numerous. And they haven't quite fulfilled the promise of blessing all the nations yet, right? But, but they're beginning to fulfill these promises. Secondly, as such, Jacob enjoys God's special blessing and assistance symbolized by the busy traffic of God's ministering angels between heaven and and Jacob on earth. And this blessing is evident as the story unfolds. Jacob is on his way to Haran, and there he's going to meet his uncle Laban. And dear uncle Laban is as deceitful and manipulative as Jacob himself, perhaps even more. And although he cheats Jacob by changing his wages multiple times, Jacob always prospers in the end. And God just prospers him. God just blesses him. And this is part of the point, right? God has set his blessing upon Jacob, seemingly for no reason, right? At least no, uh, not because of who Jacob is. And the children of Israel in the wilderness are to also understand that just as Jacob enjoyed the divine blessing and assistance, they too enjoy the same because they are heirs of the promise, right? They are Jacob's offspring. All right, next, both the text and Jacob himself linked the divine vision and presence in communication with the geographical location Bethel. And you note this, there's this big emphasis in the text on the geographical location in which this occur, where this occurs. Uh, you see it again in verse 16 at the end of the story. Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it, right? And Jacob's conclusion is that God lives there at Bethel. And if I want to meet God, I must go to Bethel. In fact, later in the story of Jacob, Jacob is back in the land, but he decides he wants to go meet with God. Where does he go? Back to Bethel. In fact, it's there at Bethel that God changes his name to Israel. Years uh, later, 
in the time of the judges. It's at Bethel that the people of God go to in order to seek counsel from God. Later on, the Ark of the Covenant is kept at Bethel for a long time under the care of Phineas, the grandson of Aaron. So part of the purpose of the text here is to tell us that there is this place and to inform the people of Israel who are out of the land of Israel but are going into the land of Israel. They're, you know, that's, that's the goal, right? To get them in. That, hey, in that land you're going to, there's this special place called Bethel. And there God meets with people. You know, It's a really an amazing spot. And you see this in the Old Testament, don't you? That God meets with people at particular places, geographical places. Sinai is one of those places, right? God meets with Moses at the burning bush at the foot of Mount Sinai. And then later he brings the people back to the very same place and reveals himself from Mount Sinai. So God reveals himself in particular places. And then finally, I think this is a big point that we need to take away from the story, is that God's redemptive promises are not earned but graciously given by a covenant-keeping God. It is God who initiates. It is God who pursues a saving relationship with undeserving people. See, Jacob has done nothing to earn God's favor. In fact, Jacob has acted deceitfully and treacherously. He's not dependent on God. He's not sought after God. In fact, this is the very first recorded interaction between Jacob and God. And guess what? Jacob wasn't seeking for God. Who initiated? God. God initiated. Jacob is fleeing. He might be even afraid that his brother is pursuing him to kill him. And yet little does he realize that someone was pursuing him. But it wasn't his brother, was it? It was God. And it wasn't, God wasn't pursuing him to kill him. God was pursuing him to what? To bless him, right? to bless him. And tonight we need to realize that. Do we realize that? Do we realize that God pursues us to bless us? That he's pursuing you, he's pursuing me in order to bless us. It's true that we are completely undeserving of God's attention and yet regardless of that he pursues us not because there's something good in us but because God is a covenant keeping God. That's why he keeps his promise and he seeks to save those who are lost. Right? This is our God. All right. That's the story of Jacob. But the story itself is quite interesting and it has a lot to teach us. We could stop right there and pack up for the night. right? But there's more to the story because this story actually points forward to something much greater. And we want to think about that for the rest of our time tonight. In order to do this, we need to turn to the New Testament. So if you turn to the Gospel of John, this, the Gospel of John, and we're asking ourselves a question, in John chapter 1 specifically, uh, we're asking ourselves a question, what does the story of Jacob have to do with Jesus, with the New Testament, with the Christian life? And so we're going to pick up here in John chapter 1, Jesus is beginning his ministry, and he's calling and drawing disciples to himself. And one of these disciples is a man named Philip. And so we're going to begin reading in verse 43. So this is John chapter 1 and verse 43. And we're going to read to the end of the chapter. The next day, Jesus purposed to go into Galilee. And he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. 
Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now, when he says that, that's quite a confession right there, isn't it? That's quite a confession. It, it really parallels um, the confession that Peter makes much later on, right? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This is uh, an amazing confession. But Jesus answered and said to him, in verse 50, Behold, I said to you, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You know, is that all it takes? That I, I, I said that I saw you under the fig tree? It seems like Jesus, there was something supernatural about what Jesus um, told Nathaniel. And Nathaniel realized that this man knows me. He, under, he knows who I am in a supernatural way. And he makes this confession. Jesus says, you think that's, you know, you're making that confession and, and, and that's all I gave you? He says, behold, you're going to see greater thing than, than these. I'm going to give you more proof for the confession you just made. What are you going to see? Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So fascinating here. Are you, do you agree that there's a parallel here? Jesus is pointing his finger back to Jacob's ladder and saying, that story back there, Genesis 28, go back and read it. It's talking about me. It's fulfilled in me. And you're going to see the same thing. Now, Nathaniel doubts. Okay. So what are the greater things they will see? They will see the fulfillment to Jacob's, the story of Jacob's ladder. So what do we see? What, what do we make of this verse? And what I want to do is I want to focus on three parallels between this verse and Jacob's ladder, the story of Jacob's ladder. Three parallels. So first one, first of all, the recipients of the dream. Those who received the dream. Who received the dream in Genesis? Well, Jacob, right? Jacob received the dream. Who else was invited to see the dream in Genesis? Well, the reader, right? Whoever is picking up Genesis to read it. They're invited. The children of Israel, initially. Well, who sees the fulfillment, the antitype of the dream in John? Well, the disciples, right? Jesus is speaking to these disciples, Nathaniel and company, and saying, you will see, right? Angels descending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, who else is invited? You and me, right? We, the readers of John, right? We're invited, in a sense, to see this vision. Is that, is that making sense? So, in one sense, there's a parallel here between uh, Jacob laying on the ground sleeping, and that's him sleeping there, and the disciples, okay, who are to see the same vision. Now, to whom does God reveal himself? You see that he reveals himself to Nathaniel. And I want you to note the contrast between Nathaniel and Jacob. I'm not going to make a big deal of this, but it's interesting that in John, Jesus says to Nathaniel, you are a man without what? Without guile. 
Well, who is Jacob? Jacob was a man full of guile, full of deceit. So here's this man who's full of deceit. He sees the vision. And then Jesus speaks to a man who is without deceit, and he sees the vision. What's the significance of that? Well, maybe we can draw this conclusion that God's revelation concerning his son is not given on the basis of human merit or demerit. Like, that's not the basis. It's because of God's fulfilling his promise to mankind. Now, Jacob, um, whether you're good or bad, we need to see the revelation of God to us, of, of Jesus Christ to us. Secondly, though, we are encouraged to, to expect a revelation from God, are we not? Jesus is saying, you're going to see something. What are you going to see? You're going to see this vision, this revelation. Now, Jacob received quite a glorious revelation. But Jesus here tells his disciples that they will see it as well. I wonder if you've ever longed to see a vision from God. I mean, I have. Wouldn't that be cool to see a vision, to fall asleep and see this vision from God? But in one sense, Jesus here is inviting us to see a vision. But it's a different kind of vision. Note the escalation here. Jacob saw the vision in a dream. And Jesus is inviting his disciples and us to see it displayed in real life before our eyes. That as we read the account of the Gospels, as we read the story of Jesus Christ, we're going to see, confirmed again and again and again, Jesus is the way to God. I'm getting ahead of ourselves, but that's what we're going to see. We're going to see that Jesus is a fulfillment of Jacob's dream. So there's correspondence in the recipient. Secondly, there's also a parallel, a correspondence in the dream itself. Now we noted that in Genesis, the angels were ascending or descending either on the ladder or down to Jacob. And this is why it's important. It's because Jesus says, you'll see the angels ascending and descending on me. And here's the question. Does Jesus correspond to the ladder or to Jacob? Are you with me on this? What's the parallel here? Is Jesus is, is the parallel between Jesus, uh, Jesus in the ladder, or Jesus in Jacob and in, in, in the promise to Jacob? Well, perhaps the um, ambiguity in Genesis is purposeful, so that if you understand that Jesus is the ladder between earth and heaven, you're right. And if you see a correspondence between Jesus and Jacob, that's also true. There's some truth there. there there's, uh, so, so let's tease these out a little bit. Jesus and the ladder. If Jesus corresponds to the ladder, then we would say that Jesus is the means by which salvation blessings can flow from heaven to mankind. Jesus vividly demonstrated this throughout his ministry, did he not? That he was the conduit of heaven's blessings from heaven to man. He healed the blind. He caused the lame to walk. He cleansed the leper. He delivered the oppressed. He raised the dead. He multiplied bread. He forgave sinners. And you see, as you're watching Jesus, that he is the conduit of heaven's blessings to mankind. Think about this. The only reason God could graciously pursue and bless a deceitful and manipulative man like Jacob is because of Jesus Christ. Like, why is it that God could pursue Jacob to bless him? Think about that question. 
the kind that that kind of a man, a deceitful, lying. I mean, he's just not a nice guy at all. How could God pursue him to bless him? One word, Jesus Christ. Because God knew that Jesus was coming and that one day Jesus would satisfy the justice of God, the wrath of God. He would bear the punishment of God for Jacob, for Jacob's manipulation, for Jacob's deceit, for Jacob's lies. Jesus would pay that price. And that's why God can come to Jacob and bless him without, I mean, without any conditions. Just bless him. And that's why he can come to you and to me and bless you and bless me because of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, heaven comes to earth. God meets with man just as Jesus began his ministry by proclaiming the heaven, the kingdom of heaven is among you. It's come down. God has come down in Jesus. Down the ladder. Now that's if Jesus is the ladder. But what if Jesus is Jacob? How does that work? What, do we, what would we learn from that? Well, we would learn that Jesus is the new and greater Jacob. Not the deceitful Jacob, but Jesus then would be God's chosen vessel through whom he will accomplish his covenant promises. And there's escalation here. The covenant with Abraham, which was renewed with Jacob, will be fulfilled in Jesus. Well, what promise is that? Remember the promise that God made to Jacob? Jacob, you're going to bring people, your, your descendants your are going to go into a land. Well, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. I wonder if you've seen that. I wonder if you have realized how Jesus Christ is the only person who, who, who has opened and pioneered a new way, not into a, a, a physical land, the land of Canaan, but into heaven itself, into the presence of God. I wonder if you've seen how because of Jesus, countless men and women, boys and girls from all over the world have come to know God, have become the spiritual descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I wonder if you've seen how how in Jesus all the families of the earth are being blessed as we speak. So Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of what God said to Jacob in that dream. All right, one more parallel to draw here. Um, So there's a parallel between the recipients. There's a parallel in the dream itself. But then there's this parallel here at the end in terms of the response to the dream. How does Jacob respond to the dream? Well, he wakes up and he concludes, God is in this place. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. This is Jacob's response to the dream, right? And it seems as if to me, it seems to me that Jesus is hinting to his disciples that they too will come to a similar conclusion. That they will come to the conclusion, how awesome is Jesus? How awesome is the Son of God? He is none other than the house of God. He is the gate of heaven. Now that is good news, friends. Because if you want to meet with God, You don't have to get on an airplane and fly over to Israel and find this place called Bethel. And where are you, God? What? God has come to dwell in Jesus. Well, Jesus Christ is God. The gate of heaven is Jesus Christ himself. Right? Where 
Do you find God in Jesus? You come to Jesus. You don't have to go to a place. You don't have to go to a geographical relation. You have to come to a person, the person of Christ. Well, this is of great significance, isn't it, for us? The significance is this, the distance that separates me from the presence of God is not a geographical distance, but it's a relational distance. It's the distance that lies between us and the person of Jesus Christ. The gate of heaven, the true point of access back into the Garden of Eden, back into the blessing of God, back into all that we long for, all that we search for, all that we desire is in the person of Jesus Christ. That is where we will find it. We will find it in the person of Jesus Christ. See, the reality is that if we're going to make it back into the Garden of Eden, we have to face the God who drove us out. You can't circumnavigate God and get the blessing. You have to face God. But the good news is that you don't have to face Him one-on-one. We can face Him through the person of Jesus Christ who paid the penalty, right? Who paid our debt, who took our sin. And so tonight, I wonder where we're at. Are we like Jacob, manipulating the circumstances of our lives in order to achieve some desired end? Are we trying to reach heaven in our own way, in our own strength? Are we in some sense building our own Tower of Babel, trying to get to God in our own way? Well, if so, we need, like Jacob, a revelation from God, don't we? We need a revelation to our hearts. And we need a revelation to our hearts that God is pursuing us, not to harm us, but to bless us. We need that revelation. And he's pursuing us in the person of Jesus Christ. We need that revelation. Secondly, we need a revelation to our hearts that all of God's covenant promises are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That he has come and he's fulfilled all the promises. They're all yes, they're all amen in Jesus Christ. But thirdly, we need a revelation to our hearts that Jesus is the gate. A gate that stands open into heaven, the ultimate Eden, that Jesus is the only means by which the true blessings of heaven can be experienced. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. Do you believe that? No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. A little further on in John, in John chapter 10, verse 9, you read these words. Jesus speaks here. He says, I am the door. And if you're following along, you're thinking, hmm, there's a connection here. I'm the gate. I'm the way. And if anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Isn't that a wonderful promise? He will be saved. So I wonder if you've seen the vision. Are you a Christian? Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus? What is your relationship to Jesus Christ? A Christian is a person to whom God has revealed these truths. 
and who believes in his heart and he confesses with his mouth that Jesus is the only way to God. There's no other way. And it sets that person apart. And this is first base, as it were. Uh, We can't go really any further in understanding the Christian life until we get this point right here, that Jesus is our only access to God. So do you believe that? That's the big question tonight. Do you believe that? And if you don't believe that, then I challenge you and I, I would encourage you to ask God to reveal that to you. Because this is a truth. Now, you can hear it and you can agree with me. I believe that Jesus is the only way to God. But to truly believe it, to truly lay hold of it, to truly live based on that belief, it must come by revelation from God. God has to reveal it to your heart. And so I challenge and encourage you, if you don't believe it, that you ask God, reveal that to me. Reveal to me this dream, this, 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 this fulfillment of Jacob's dream that you are the only way, you are the gate to heaven. And then I would ask you to do one more thing. Don't just ask God to reveal Christ to you as the only way, but then read the Gospel of John. Read the Gospel. Read the rest of the story, right? That's chapter 1. And read how that vision, in a sense, comes today, comes to light, comes to fulfillment before the eyes of the disciples and before our eyes throughout that Gospel of John. And as you read that Gospel of John, you will see, you'll find out that again and again and again, Jesus is confirmed and affirmed as the only way to the Father, the only way to have life. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this simple truth, but this profound truth that you have revealed yourself in the person, in the, in the human being, Jesus Christ, and that he is our only way, our only hope, our only way back to you, back to the Garden of Eden, back to the blessings, back to your presence. And Father, I ask that you might reveal that to our hearts and make that a reality to us. And we who do believe that, make that even a greater reality, that you are the way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.